la 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 Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government at William & Mary, and I'm joined, as always, by my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Welcome, Marcus. Hi, Jeffrey. So, Jeff, I have a couple questions. I, You know, I've been getting a lot of questions from my students, uh, I think, with, with some trepidation about what's going to happen next week. Now, I should say we're, we're recording this on Wednesday, October 28th, so the election is basically a week away. And a lot of my students are looking at the polls, they're looking at 538, they're looking at these various estimates, and, and if they're liberal, which a lot of them are, they're, they're happy with, with what they see. They see Biden in a healthy lead nationally, and in some key states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, maybe even Florida, either tied or, or a little bit of a healthy lead. Um, but they also know that the, the picture looked very similar in 2016, and, and for a lot of them, they went to to bed that night very disappointed because they were ultimately let down by, by the polls. So I want to ask you, Jeff, why should we be more confident, if we should, uh, in the polls this time around than the, the, what we had in 2016? Yeah, no, those are, those are good questions. I mean, I think it's something that a lot of people are, are focused on. If you go to the New York Times, the Upshot has a list of the polls that are coming in. And what they do is they actually have a cool visualization where they show what the average of the polls is right now for each state, what it would have been if you assume the same polling miss as we had in 2016 in that state. So it just says, all right, well, polls on average were wrong by six points or whatever in Wisconsin. So let's reduce the Democratic margin in Wisconsin by six points. Would, if we do that, what would be the, the result for that state? And so that's kind of helpful in just thinking about the polling error in a very rough way. And it illustrates that the polls would have to be wrong by more than they were in 2016 to change the result that is predicted by these models. So I think that's, that's the first thing to say, is that the national polling miss in 2016 was not very big, but the state-level polling miss in some states was quite large. And so um, it is worth worrying or wondering, depending on your, your point of view on this, whether uh, the polling miss this year will be as large or larger. In the past... Polling error has not necessarily gone the same way each election. In fact, it usually changes. And part of the reason for that is that pollsters look back at their previous effort and see where they went wrong and try to make adjustments. And so it's very likely that if the polls are wrong, they're wrong in a different way than they were last time. And so it, it may not be so useful to look at last time's polling miss and say, well, let's just assume that this time, uh, because probably things are different. And so one thing that a lot of pollsters have changed, although not all, is the way that pollsters reweight the populations that they sample for these polls. So this is maybe more than we really want to go into in this podcast. But um, one of the big ways that polls were wrong in 2016 was that they underrepresented uh, non-college educated people in their polls. Those, it turns out in 2016, non-college ed educated people were harder to reach by pollsters than college educated people. Now, pollsters know that they're not necessarily capturing a perfect microcosm of the state in their polling of 700 or 800 people. So what they do is they take the people they did poll and they reweight their views based on their prevalence in the total population. So if you get a few black people in your sample, 
but you know they make up 26% of the electorate, then you weight those three people in your poll such that they make up 26% of the electorate, right? Or whatever, for whatever demographic you're worried about. And in 2016, education was not one of the things that pollsters reweighted based on. But in but in, in 2020, it largely is. So most pollsters now, the large ones anyway, are reweighting their numbers by education. So we should not seem to see the same exact kind of a miss that we saw in, in 2016. So one thing that's likely is the poll error won't be exactly the same as it was. And there's no rule that says polls always have to work in a particular direction. So in 2016, the polls tended to underestimate Trump. Um, but in 2012, um, the polls underestimated Obama. And so it's not clear that we're going to get the error in the same direction that we got in the previous election. Marcus, what about you? What, do you think we're going to repeat the same mistakes that we've made polling wise in, in this election? Well, Jeff, I tend to be really skeptical about these polls. Uh, I, I was skeptical of the polls in 2016. I'm, I'm still skeptical today uh, for the reasons we've talked about on, on previous podcasts, which is just I, I, I get really nervous about uh, making predictions, not just generally speaking, but I get nervous about making predictions with, with things that are so difficult uh, to understand, right? I mean, it's, it's actually fascinating to me to think about this. We, we spent a lot of money and effort trying to understand the American voter, right? Trying to understand why they vote for the people that they do, under what conditions they look for, for particular types of candidates. And we have, I think it's fair to say, some, some, some theories and some models. I mean, for example, you know, a lot of people think that the economy is just the number one uh, sort of variable that explains who people vote for, right? And the, the old uh, sort of catchphrase is like, am I better today than I was four years ago, right? And, and presumably that has something to do with what, how much money do I have in my bank account? What if I own stocks or a 401k? What does that look like? Am I employed? You know, all, all those types of things, which is sort of a very uh, rough kind of way of thinking about making a prediction. But, it, you know, maybe it's 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 valid. Other people take more uh, sort of ideational models. Right. Does the, the person who's in office or wants to be in office, do their values resonate with my values? Uh, and then, but that requires you having some sense of what your values are and knowing what other people's values are and, and so on and so forth. So in other words, I. I I still sort of am, am skeptical that we'll come up with any sort of really nice model uh, of, of explaining the, the, the American voter, precisely because I just don't really think we understand the American voter that well. Um, and, and I think that's a problem that, that we have as scholars. And so for that reason, I, it, just because we have numbers to attach to these things, if we don't really understand fundamentally what's going on in the minds of the, the American voter, that's hard for me to see that these polls are doing things. But having said all that, I also agree with what you just explained, which is that I think the pollsters um, are not stupid. They know what they're doing. They, they tend to do their job very well. Uh, historically, they've done a pretty decent job at, at uh, predicting elections and midterm elections. And uh, you know, since 2016, they've got a number of things right um, with respect to midterms. So you know, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic uh, that the polling will be better this time around, because I think that, that a lot of hand-wringing has occurred over the last three and a half years. Uh, and sort of rethinking the way that we do things or the way the pollsters do things to make things a little bit better. But I actually, just putting the, the, the polling to a side for a second, I think there are also some fundamental, really big fundamental differences this time around uh, that would make it less likely for a surprising outcome, right? So I think last time in 2016, uh, we had the Comey letter, right? I think there's, there's no question that while a number of people had already made up their mind and so the vote was kind of baked in, independence uh, might have been swayed by by that letter at the very, very last minute. I think the lack of a 
a sort of reasonable third party candidate is something that not a lot of people are talking about, but I do think is important. So I, I know Kanye uh, is on some ballots, but Jill Stein actually did uh, attract a good number of votes. And I, I know people go kind of go back and forth as to whether or not they uh, those votes would have gone you know, to Hillary Clinton or would have gone to Trump. But I, I, at the end of the day, I think having a, a lack of a third party uh, candidate is is an important, important difference. Hillary's likability numbers compared to Biden's uh, are, are striking to me. So I think Biden, despite having some, you know, sort of objectively looking at his candidacy, there's, there's some issues uh, potentially that voters might have. Likeability is not really one of his big problems, uh, whereas for Hillary Clinton, um, it was. And so I think that that probably makes a, a big difference. And then I think just more generally, too, when, when you have an incumbent, you know, they, they have an extreme advantage in the sense that, you know, a lot of, of what Trump does is covered by mainstream television, is covered by the mainstream media, but he also has to defend a record. And so one of the bad parts about being an incumbent is that you have your campaign promises sort of held against you. And so I think if you look at, at Trump's legislative record, it's, it's not exactly a great series of accomplishments. And, I, and you know, notwithstanding the Supreme Court, uh, which have been clearly big accomplishments for him. The legislative side of things has not been all that all that impressive, I don't think. So I think for that reason, too, the incumbency normally, I think, really helps uh, the president. But I think in this particular case, because there's not a strong record to run on, I think it, it doesn't that, that the power of that incumbency kind of gets reduced a little bit. Yeah, those are those are great points. I think it's worth remembering. I think we, we, we forget this, maybe that it was a surprise that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016. But there had been signs, especially in the last week of the election, that things were not breaking in Clinton's direction. And so those signs included, well, obviously, there, there are the events. So you mentioned the Comey letter, and there's some debate about whether the, how, how much of an effect the Comey letter actually had, um, because there were signs of a tightening race before that. We did see signs of tightening in the polls in the last week of the election. And one of the reasons that the election aggregators did pretty poorly on the whole is that they are using kind of a moving average of the of the polls. And so as the polls started shifting at the end of the race, they didn't make enough of an adjustment to the previous level of the polls. And this is something that the the modelers have kind of changed this year to make their polling more their, their aggregate more responsive to late breaking changes in the polls. And so if there were that tightening in this last week of the election, we would expect it to be quickly reflected in the in the models that that say 538 is putting out there. But where we really saw problems in 2016 for Clinton was in district level polling. And this is something that kind of falls under the radar a little bit because folks who watch this stuff are really focused on national polls and polls of battleground states. But a lot of polling is done in districts for House-level candidates. And so when, you're, when you have a poll out in a particular House district, you often also ask, well, how are you going to vote on the presidential election? And those polls are not always publicly released. Sometimes they're done for candidates and sometimes they're released by local press where they don't get a lot of play. But in 2016, it was very clear from those polls that Clinton was running well behind where Obama had been running in those same districts. And when you look at district-level polling this year, uh, we do not see that tightening at all. We see Biden running well ahead of where Clinton ran in those districts. So those polls on average are done by companies that are less well-known, and maybe there are some problems with those pollsters. But there's some reason to prefer those polls in a way, because they're less some subject to something called herding. This idea that polls near the end of a race in particular, if you're a pollster and you're putting out a, 
uh, result and uh, your result is way out of line with what other polls have found, you might be reluctant to release that report. You might give it a second look. You might try to reweight based on something else because you think there's something wrong with your findings because it, it's, it's kind of dangerous to stand out at the end if you're a pollster. Um, so we saw a poll released today as we're, as we're recording this that had, had Biden up 17 points in Wisconsin. And this is by ABC Washington Post. Like, this is a big pollster that has a great reputation. And it's almost certainly wrong, right? Like, I, I think it's tremendously unlikely that Biden is up by 17 in Wisconsin. But to ABC Washington Post's credit, they released the poll that says that Biden is up 17. We would expect um, that there's going to be some outlier polls that, that you know, just due to chance that they, uh, they are off by more than other polls. Um, and so we should be seeing those. But what you really see when you look at the, the polling results near the end of the race is that poll, the, the variance in polls actually gets reduced. So there is more clustering of polls near the end of the race. And we think that might be because of herding. Now, uh, where polls kind of copy the results of other polls. Now, at the district level, you don't get that because there is no polling average of the second congress congressional district in Colorado, right? So whoever's running that poll has nothing to herd to and so you might expect that those polls don't fall victim to that kind of bias, and so might give us a better sense of a change in the race. And this year, we don't see that kind of a change in the race as we did in in twenty in twenty sixteen. Well, that's that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about those district level polls in that in that way. So that's that's helpful. I mean, the other thing is so going from the district level to the opposite side of things. You know, I think a lot of people discount the national uh, number, and, and rightly so, in the sense that we don't pick uh, our president based on popular vote. Hopefully all of our listeners realize that. But th on the other hand, you, you do get to a point where the national poll, if it's if it's in favor of one person uh, to a large degree, like a, by a big number, let's say, it becomes almost mathematically impossible for them not to win uh, the Electoral College, right? Unless, you know, obviously you could have all these, the, the national polls are just pulling people to California for some strange reason or whatever. But the fact that Biden is up a, a significant amount on on where Hillary was in 2016 at the national level. I think a lot of people are, are sort of discounting that as irrelevant, but to me, it's actually highly relevant. It means that it's likely the case that 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 is a good indicator if you're a Democrat that the the state polls are also probably uh, capturing the the will of the people correctly, precisely because that number is is so big. I think Hillary was up at the end by two or three points. Uh, in 2016, and, and Biden is looking seven or eight, depending on the average that you you look at, maybe even higher. To me, that's that's significant. That that's a that's a much uh, stronger national lead. And while we don't directly choose presidents that way, I think that that does have a has some sort of predictive value. I would guess. Yeah, I think there's only so many points that you can lose to the electoral college from your national right. average, and so that that national polling versus battleground state polling gap has run as, as high as a several points, but but it's not going to be 10 points. Um, so, you know, if, if you're running enough of a lead nationally, it is, it's not really possible for you to lose the election. But, you know, a few points, yes, it is possible. And the way the Electoral College is set up right now, it dramatically favors the Republican candidate. Jeff, do you also agree with me in, in, in my sense is that a lot of the discussion about the number of early votes and, and mail-in votes that have already been cast, I mean, I think the media is making a, a very big deal about this. And, and I guess it, it is, by historical comparisons, uh, relevant in the sense that the numbers are much higher than we've, we've ever seen before. But it also strikes me that we're also, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so uh, a lot of people, I think, rightly don't want to go to the polls, uh, the actual polls to, to vote polling places on uh, election day because they don't want to get coronavirus. And so 
it's it's I don't I'm not sure we can read too much into the the large numbers of people who have already voted, even if some people are trying to sort of read the tea leaves there and, and compare the number of Democrats who have already voted to the number of Republicans. Is that is your sense that this is a kind of difficult enterprise as well? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, early vote doesn't tell us a whole lot. I was just arguing with one of our, our government department colleagues who shall remain nameless about this about this point. I mean, I feel like in past elections, also early vote isn't tremendously helpful, but but it, you at least had something to compare it to, right? So you could say, okay, the Republicans are ahead of where they were at this time in the early voting from previous elections, or or vice versa, right? And you could say that in previous elections because the level of early vote in some of these states, particularly Florida and Nevada, are the ones that like give us good numbers on on uh, on early votes and are also battlegrounds. So we we looked at those early votes and we said, okay, well this the Democrats are running ahead of their margins they usually run or the, or behind, and that might tell us something because this has been done before and we know kind of in general how many Democratic registered voters there will be who vote early and vice versa. But this year, things are so different in terms of the share of the vote that is likely to be early because of the pandemic and the difference between early voting in person and mail-in voting and how those are counted. All this stuff is very new this year. And so we don't really have a good way to compare it and put it into context. And so what does it mean that Democrats have this much of a cushion in this particular county in Florida? I don't know, because we don't know to what extent the, the pandemic has changed voting patterns in particular ways. So it, it is difficult. The, the other thing that sometimes gets missed in the discussion of early voting is that most of what we know about early voting is based on voter registration. And so you can see sometimes in these state level numbers that this percentage of early votes were returned by Democratic registered voters or Republican registered voters or independent voters. But it doesn't tell you how they voted, obviously, because the votes haven't been counted yet. And in an election where some pollsters expect there to be an uneven split of independent votes, that might not tell you a whole lot, right? If the independents are swinging more toward Biden this year than they did toward Clinton in 2016, then the fact that Democrats and Republicans are returning ballots in a particular way doesn't tell you the whole story because the independent vote is going to be different than it has been. And so it's just really, really difficult you make assumptions about the percentage of Democrats that are voting for Biden, the percentage of registered Republicans that are voting for Trump, the percentage of independents that are voting for either candidate, and you make some assumptions about that, and maybe you get close to the result. But my advice would be to to wait a week and and get slightly better numbers. All right, Jeff, just one more one more question for you on this topic. So um, if the if the uh, election night comes and it turns out that the polls uh, were not correct and and Trump wins re-election. What is your sense of what the explanation will be? So if you remember back to 2016, almost immediately, I think actually like the day after the election, people were uh, pontificating on what Hillary did wrong. Uh, and one of the things that came up was her, her sort of final week of the campaign. She didn't go to Wisconsin. You know, there's all this discussion about these mistakes she made in the Midwest and uh, where she, she was spending money and so on and so forth. And people sort of attributed the, the final sort of visits, I guess, uh, and where she spent her time to the to the outcome. That always struck me as a little bit uh, dubious for reasons we could talk about. But I'm, I'm curious if you have a sense of what the explanation will be. So what, what do you think people will be saying uh, the day after the election if, if Trump wins as to why, why he won? Yeah, so I think there are probably a couple of things that people will look closely at. Uh, so one is a similar situation to, to Clinton. Um, so the, the Biden team has been unsuccessful in resisting calls to campaign in states that will not decide the election. So um, Biden and or surrogates have traveled to Georgia frequently, Texas now, 
Iowa, states that are unnecessary and, in fact, are extremely unlikely to be the state that carries Biden over the line to 270 electoral votes in the U.S. system. So that time, time is the most valuable resource in a campaign, that time is really important. And the fact that uh, the campaign has decided to to go to these places that are not essential to winning the election and under most scenarios seems maybe questionable. But the, the, the argument on the Biden team side is like, unlike previous elections, the point of going to Georgia is not to have like thousands of people show up to a huge rally that gives everyone COVID in Georgia. You can really do these rallies from anywhere because they're for a TV audience more than they are for a uh, local audience. And one of the things that the Biden team is trying to do is keep the Trump folks playing defense in these areas. They're trying to expand the maps slightly so that there are alternative mechanisms by which Biden wins the election if Pennsylvania is lost. And they're also trying to help some down ballot races, like races for the Senate, which if Biden wins the election will be really important. So if there is a Biden presidency, having a democratically controlled Senate will allow Biden to get some stuff done, whereas Having a Republican-controlled Senate will really short-circuit Biden's policy agenda. And so I think the Biden team thinks that's important enough that it's worth spending a little time trying to make it happen. But I think people would second-guess if, if, if the election is lost. I, I will say, like, I don't think the local polling in, like, Wisconsin, as you saw from the poll today, uh, is having up 17, or even Pennsylvania and Michigan is, is such that it would sound an alarm that you got to get the candidate back to these areas. But I do expect Biden to be in Pennsylvania again. Before, before the end of this election, because it is so pivotal. I think the other thing that folks will look at, and we're already looking at, but there'll be additional attention focused on, is reaching particular kinds of voters in these polls. So if you're going to point to a flaw in the polls, um, then I think the biggest potential issue is some groups that may be underrepresented in these polls. And we've gone through years and years of having to refine how polls are done because people are getting harder and harder to reach. Just like if you ask, I think I'm sure our students who are listening to this, like when was the last time you picked up the phone when someone called you uh, who like didn't text you first to let you know a call was coming? I mean, that's a, a pretty crazy idea that you would just answer the phone and answer questions from a random stranger. So I think it's becoming harder and harder to reach people. And so there's been a move to some online polls, but those have their own problems. Um, and I think that's something that the polling industry collectively is going to continue to have to struggle with. Well, thank you for that. I'm, I'm actually reminded of a paper. One of my um, friends in, in graduate school went back and looked at, I'm trying to remember exactly how this worked, but I think he looked at county level visits by the by Clinton and Trump in uh, 2016 in the, the key battleground states uh, and then looked at, at vote share. So put this into a regression model and basically found that there was very little effect. So we think that these visits like actually make a big difference in terms of, or maybe we don't think they make a big difference. I think most people think they make a difference in terms of, of how people vote. But at least in this paper, the argument was simply that the, the evidence doesn't really suggest that Hillary lost Wisconsin because she didn't show up. But, but on the, you know, the parallel with that is that Trump did not win these states because he was there uh, a lot. So it's just sort of, you know, throws cold water on the idea that these, these visits make uh, a big difference. Now, it's just one study, obviously, and you could, you could slice and dice those numbers a variety of different ways. But that, I think, is interesting. Marcus, who do you think is going to win this election? I want to put this the right way. I think there's about an 80% chance that Biden wins the election. And I would say I'm highly confident in that assessment which is to say, I think Biden's going to win. It's not inconceivable to me that Trump will win, but I do think it's sort of like a one in five, maybe even worse than that, one in seven, one in eight chance. And I'm pretty confident 
Like I, I, I think that those numbers sound right to me. I know I just gave you two different numbers. Eighty percent is different than one in, you know, seven or eight. But you know, I think I think Biden is likely to win. I think the pollsters have learned a lot since two thousand sixteen about the the sort of method of of weighting particular population groups and particular demographics. And I also just find it hard to believe that with Trump's legislative record and the pandemic and the state of the economy, uh, that there's a there's the same level of excitement that he was enabled he was able to engender last time around. I think in 2016 he was something new, he was something different. There was a lot of excitement about him because he was different. And I think a lot of those those things aren't in play. I and mean, I think, you know, he clearly has a strong base and that, that base will vote for him. I think uh, the, the vote, the get out the vote effort, I think will be, will be uh, successful with that group. I expect to see that, that base show up for him. Uh, but it's just hard for me to believe with all the sort of fundamentals, the way that they are, that, that he wins again. So I would, I think Biden's going to win. I think it's going to be a pretty decisive victory. And I actually think that we'll know on election night. So I, I, I'm less uh, pessimistic than many people that this is going to be a sort of long, drawn out uh, process. Because I think, you know, if the polls end up being right, I think that the, the number of electoral college votes that, that uh, Biden is able to get, you know, over 300, 310, something like that, I think it's just going to be very difficult for Trump to make a sustained argument that there was, you know, ballot issues and, and the number of states that he would have to do so. And also that the differences are so, uh, would be small enough that it would be actually be um, something that he could he could show in courts, and so I, I suspect that uh, he probably won't try. Thanks, Marcus. I, I think that that concludes our session of IR professors pretend to know something about American politics. But that's fun, right? I really enjoy asking our American politics colleagues questions about you know uh, structural realism. That's right. So it's it's <laughs> in only the fair. English school, right? But one one aspect of the election that we haven't talked about that might be interesting and maybe more in our lane is. Uh, these allegations of disinformation and hacking campaigns that coming from uh, Russia, coming from Iran, maybe China, attempts to meddle in foreign elections. Do you think this is something new? I mean, do you see parallels between what Russia is attempting to do now in the United States and what they did in 2016 and past episodes of international intrigue? I mean, the U.S. has stolen tons of elections over the years, right? <laughs> I mean, it's true. This is the kind of thing that, you know, is it, we associate with Russia and Iran and other kind of bad actors in international relations. But I think it's worth remembering that the United States uh, has engineered more than its share of uh, government changes, let's say, in other countries, uh, particularly during the Cold War um, and in some notable cases with very dramatic consequences for the populations involved. So you can imagine like the case of Iran uh, or the case of Chile, um, where the U.S. had a strong hand in people coming to power that were leaders of repressive regimes. So before we get too um, up in arms about uh, Russia or Iran's behavior, we should remember that this is the kind of thing that lots of countries have dabbled in over the years. I think that's right. I mean, so the way I think about uh, this question about disinformation and its effects on elections or its effects on um, a particular population in a country is we've, we have seen a shift, I think, recently in terms of the, the types of information that uh, states are, are employing, right? So it seems to me back in, let's, let's, let's sort of draw a line in the, the mid-2010s, okay? So we'll, we'll say before 2016, uh, where that was a very, you know, sort of cohesive, coherent, comprehensive strategy to, to introduce disinformation into, into the system. Prior to that, a lot of what we would see in terms of whether we're calling it propaganda or disinformation was sort of uh, 
along the lines of making arguments or narratives about facts on the ground, right? So a thing would happen, an event would take place, and the sort of the disinformation would be sort of painting that event in the best light of the side that is trying to convey that information. So it's sort of like taking what's happened in the in the world and making it about something that's that's in the strategic interest of of the state to sort of paint that in a, in a flattering light. And I think what happened in 2016, where there's a shift, and I'm, I'm sort of more talking about this sort of online social media uh, part of this now, to creating disinformation from a reality construction point of view, right? So it wasn't so much that there was an objective reality out there that, that Russia was you know, trying to get their, their spin on or sort of you know, convince Americans about uh, you know, why Obama wasn't a great president or something like, along those lines, but rather what they were doing was trying to construct a new reality by providing disinformation that were just you know, outright lies, for example, right? So a lot of this, the stuff that was targeted at Hillary Clinton People have gone back and looked at it, and it turns out that you know, this stuff had no basis in, in reality at all. It wasn't Hillary had said X, and Russia's interpreting what X is. It was Hillary never said X. They're, they're saying that she did, and they're trying to, to basically construct uh, a new reality. And so there might have been elements of this uh, happening in the past. We can go back and look at all the, you know, the, the sort of public diplomacy of, of the United States or public diplomacy of other types of, of you know, countries in the, in the 20th century. There's some elements of constructing reality. But I do feel like we've entered a new era where it's not so much about competing narratives as much as it is about competing realities, right? And, and that's very tricky, right? Because if you're a consumer of this information, what you're basically being told is, uh, here is a, a fact about the world. This is something that this person said. Uh, and my job now as a consumer of this information is to figure out, is that true? You know, if I, if, do I, how do I find out if that's true or not? Do I, do I, how do I look that up? Where, what source do I go to, right? Uh, and that's a, lot, that's a lot more difficult, it seems to be, of a problem than just simply saying, uh, well, here's one person's take on what's happening, and I can agree or disagree with that. This is a more fundamental problem, which is, I don't know what's true anymore, right? And so when you're in that kind of situation, it's not, it's not obvious how the United States, uh, as the actor now responding to this, let's say, deals with that. How do you get people to uh, realize when something is just flat out wrong? Uh, how do you get people to realize that, that you know, what, what's being presented to them might not actually be be truthful. That's a difficult problem. Um, by the way, it's also an issue for not just the, the population in, in states, not just people on Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram, but also diplomats. So one of the, the things that diplomats have dealt with, and I do some, some work in this uh, area that, that we talk about is digital diplomacy, the idea of sort of conducting diplomatic relations through things like social media. One of the struggles they have is trying to figure out how to respond to these things. Um, I was reading uh, about Michael McFall. Many of you will know he was a uh, former Russian ambassador, and he, he had to deal with this all the time because <laughs> you know, being the ambassador of Russia, it's sort of like you're, you're presented on social media with, with false information. And the, the dilemma or the conundrum is by engaging with that information, you, you in some ways are sort of legitimizing it, right? So even, even by, by pointing it out and saying uh, this is wrong, or pointing out why this is not factual, you're amplifying the original signal to, to a certain degree, right? But if you leave it alone and you don't do anything with it, then you run the risk that people are going to take it seriously and, uh, and, and engage with it and, and believe that it's true. So I'm really sympathetic to our, our diplomats, our policymakers, our ambassadors, all the, all the people who are confronted with information on a daily basis that they know is just flat out wrong. It's not obvious that you, there's an easy solution to, to dealing with that problem because the more you engage, in some sense, the more you are uh, uh, admitting or suggesting that this has some value 
with which you should be engaging with it, right? So it's it's uh, it's a very very difficult problem. Yeah, I was kind of wondering how you were going to work digital diplomacy into this. Listener, you might not know this, but I have to work really hard in editing every week to make sure these podcasts are not all about digital diplomacy because Professor Holmes um, enjoys bringing the subject around to that area, even when the questions really have no bearing on digital diplomacy. It's, um, one, of my, it's one of my hobbies. In, in this case, I mean, I think it's really interesting to think about how social media acts as a vector for this kind of disinformation content. And I mean, I, I, it's a useful thought exercise. You know, what, would the, what would this kind of an operation look like without Facebook, without Twitter, if these mechanisms for easy integration of new information into the discussion didn't exist? And I mean, I'm, I'm uh, I think really everyone would be better off without Facebook. So I think I think Facebook is a criminal enterprise and uh, uh, toxic for all of us and um, a place where, um, you know, hate groups are given voice and all this bad stuff. And I think we'd all be best served by removing it from our our phones and, and computers. Um, but the fact is, it does exist. And so it's very interesting to think about how these platforms have been weaponized by actors from outside the United States trying to get a message across. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're a state, like if you put yourself in, in the position of a policymaker in the United States who's, who's trying to think about the best way of dealing with disinformation on the internet uh, coming from outside actors that are trying to influence politics in your country, uh, it seems to me you have a couple different different options, right? You can You could ignore it. You could say, I'm just not going to pay attention to any of this. You could try to actively debunk it. Um, by amplifying the signal, but 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 in the same way, sort of saying the signal is wrong. So you you admit that it's there, but you you suggest that it's actually not not accurate. You could try to create a counter narrative, so you don't debunk the thing that you're responding to. You create something in parallel that hopefully is as engaging, uh, and it sort of uh, speaks to the issue that's that the disinformation is is uh, targeting. There's a great example of that. I don't know if you remember Jeff, but back in um, when the Crimea situation was happening. Canada at NATO had this wonderful, uh, I guess we would call it a troll or a, this was kind of before memes were like really popular, but this is sort of, a, I guess, a trolling type of post where they, where they put a picture up of, of Russia and then they, they highlighted, uh, you know, part of Ukraine and they had Russia in red. They're like, this is Russia. And then over here they had not Russia. Uh, and they tweeted that out, uh, and it got it got a tremendous amount of of play because people were were thinking to themselves, this speaks directly to to what's going on. This, by the way, was at the time when when Russia was trying to pretend that they weren't actually doing anything in Crimea. The, the the people in those green jackets were just there for on holiday or something. But in any event, the the point was that that NATO candidate NATO was able to sort of create this new kind of narrative, a parallel competition, like an information competition thing in Twitter, and that actually ended up being uh, reasonably reasonably successful. You could you could try to discredit the the origin of the of the sender. You could try to say you know this is a this is an opponent who is trying to to bring us down, and and the the author of this is doesn't know what they're doing, or the author of this is a, a maligned in some way. You could try to disrupt the the source of this information to cyber operations or or something like that. But but none of these solutions uh, it seems to me are all that great. You know this is a this is a problem that if we live in a world where it's sort of like an information market, you know, and, and ideas are just floating around there uh, and people can latch onto any ones that they want. Uh, and it's just a matter of sort of who has the strongest signal in the in the in the space that we're talking about. In this case, it's sort of cyberspace. It's, it's not obvious how you deal with this. 
And it's not obvious that the problem's going away. I think if anything, it's going to get get much worse over time as the so-called deep fakes and the quality of this disinformation um, becomes better and better. I think the only the only solution at the broad level is is sort of media literacy and source literacy and and sort of educating people on how they can, uh, to the best that they can, determine what what information is actually accurate. Sort of deciphering disinformation uh, where its origins might be coming from. But this is a this is a tough problem. It's going to be with us for some time. So one one potential solution that that uh, we haven't talked about is going back to the that old standby deterrence and. You know, it's kind of interesting to think of deterrence in the context of disinformation and cyber operations generally. Something we, we often talk about in, in cyber, in this, the kind of cyber attack literature, is about the difficulty of the defense, that it's just really hard to defend yourself against cyber attacks. The offense is seen as being easier. And you can make a similar kind of analogy to disinformation that trying to debunk every crazy information operation that some country throws at you is a lot of work. It might be impossible um, trying to defend, shut down um, fake accounts on Twitter and Facebook, uh, do all this other stuff that's on the defense. It's just really hard. The, the economics of it are difficult. The, it doesn't scale well. And offense just seems easier. And so whoever is on the offense maybe has a little bit of an advantage. So when you think about how do we stop a cyber attack, Defense is part of the story, but the defense establishment, at least, the uh, uh, kind of defense analysts really want there to be another side of the story that is deterrence. Often, disinformation falls into a set of buzzwords in, in the defense world. So right now, what we used to talk about gray zone conflict. This is conflict where you're, you're kind of in conflict with some country, but you're not actually uh, shooting a lot of them. You're engaged in kind of like a larger conflict that involves disinformation and cyber operations and influence campaigns and, and all this other stuff. And now we've kind of morphed into more of the, the, the term of art now is a hybrid war, where there might be some shooting, uh, but mostly it's about this kind of lower level of conflict. And there are a lot of questions about how countries deal with these sort of new, or they're not new, but um, newly recognized conflicts, that you're not shooting at someone, so it seems like blowing something up in their country is maybe excessive, uh, but at the same time, you want to deter some of this behavior, and how do you deter it? And um, in the cyber literature, we have a concept called cross-domain deterrence, and this is the idea that, okay, I want to stop you from cyber attacking me, and so what I'm going to do is threaten to real attack you. So I can be like, listen, if you cyber attack me, I will blow up this building in your country. So we're going to cross the different domains of conflict, air, sea, space, nuclear, conventional, cyber, real world, all these domains to try to deter behavior in one level with something on another level. Now, we've always done this, right? We've, we've always used something like economic sanctions, for example, as a tool of deterrence to say, okay, if you do this bad behavior, it may not merit me blowing up a building in your country, but it might merit me putting more economic sanctions on your country. Um, or we might try to get some kind of a, a multilateral effort against you. Um, so there's always been this kind of cross-domain thing happening, but kind of in only recent years have we formalized this and thought about it as how would we apply this in, in, in the world today against cyber attacks. And so you might think about what would we do, we the United States, do to deter Russian aggression in the form of disinformation and attempts to attack our elections. And it's actually a really hard problem. And the Obama administration tried to do some stuff at the end of the administration to deter Russian action. They were trying to be very careful about it because it was election season, and they didn't want to be seen as partisan in those efforts. And I think there's a lot of regret 
around around that decision from the Obama team. Um, but after the election, there were sanctions against Russia's Russian folks. There was there was expelling of of um, Russian intelligence operatives um, to try to uh, send a message that this sort of thing would not be tolerated in the future. Now, under the Trump administration, for obvious reasons, um, those that push has really stopped, right? Um, and there isn't a lot of pushback on Russia for its actions right now, at least that we're aware of publicly. But you can imagine, particularly in a Biden administration, a renewed effort to try to dissuade Russia, China, and Iran from engaging in this kind of behavior in future elections. So what would Biden do? What could he say to Russia that would be credible, that would prevent them from engaging in this kind of activity? Could the U.S. credibly threaten to try to manipulate things in Russia in, in, in kind of a return volley against what Russia does? It's harder in Russia because it's not a democracy. So um, there aren't really real elections to influence. But there might be other ways the U.S. could meddle in terms of supporting opposition groups and, and that sort of thing. We, to my knowledge, aren't currently doing that. We maybe are. I don't know. But you can imagine some kind of tit-for-tat kind of approach like that, where we respond with our own disinformation against an opposition group. But you could also imagine some form of escalation where the U.S. says, listen, if you engage in this behavior in the future, we will engage in cyber attacks against military targets in Russia, which risks escalating the situation into a real conflict, which I think all parties want to avoid. So how do we send a message to Russia that we're serious enough about this, that it stops them from engaging in this behavior? And it's, it's a really difficult problem. Well, I, yeah, I, I unfortunately completely agree with you, Jeff. I guess I would I would point out just two different things. So one, I think you're absolutely right about the idea of this this sort of cross domain deterrence. One problem, though, with a lot of these actors is that they don't always tend to be state actors, right? So one of the the issues in Russia, for example, is that you have a lot of weird groups that may be sort of you know connected uh, uh, to the state. Putin might have some control over them. Um, a lot of weird groups doing kind of weird things. And so I, I think we tend to think about deterrence at the, at the state level. But if it's, if it's non-state actors, they're sort of like the genesis of some of this stuff for whatever reason. It's going to be harder to get at, at, at those groups. Now, it's not impossible. You can still use deterrence to get Putin to, you know, say to Putin, you, you got to get control over these guys uh, or gals or whoever and do something about them. And that, that could work. Uh, but it, it, I think it's a little thorny in this, in this world where like anybody can be a disinformation specialist if they... Uh, you know, learn a little Python or whatever, and, and their in their basement can get connected to the internet and and let the world sort of see their bots or whatever. Um, so I think that's a that's a problem. The other thing I would I would say, based on your your discussion deterrence, is my sense is that we haven't spent enough time actually thinking about what Russia wants. So these discussions often sort of are, are very vague and they, they, they talk about things like, you know, Russia wants to divide us and Russia wants to create chaos and they want to do this and that. Uh, but the underlying sort of motivation uh, for doing that is very often left implicit uh, and, and not uh, sort of like, you know, discussed or, or thought uh, much about. So, I mean, they could be doing it for, for lots of different reasons, presumably. I mean, one might be they want to regain their uh, power status. They want to be a great power. And they think somehow that you know, sowing chaos or whatever is one way uh, to do that. They could be do, doing something like, um, oh, what's the word? They, we talk about sort of soft balancing, like, you know, Russia no longer can really compete with the United States economically or, or even militarily. But one thing they can do is kind of be a, a pain in the, the side of the U.S. and sort of uh, do things that are, that are uh, not exactly going to sort of 
have balancing dynamics in terms of, of material power, but can maybe ideationally a little bit be kind of a, a thorn in our side and make it more difficult for the United States to do what it wants. And so therefore it serves as a, a little bit of a, of a balance. For example, if you, if, if you believe that Hillary Clinton, for, you know, if she had won in 2016, would have taken action that would have been against Putin's interests, whether it's you know, expanding NATO or putting missiles in, in you know, Eastern Europe or whatever, you know, th- then you might think to yourself, well, I can't really stop that from happening militarily. But one thing I could do is stop that by, from happening by preventing her from becoming president. And so that's a way of, of sort of balancing against the power of the United States at a very uh, sort of leadership individual level. You might also think that Russia's goal is to, to maintain their sphere of influence, right? So maybe it's not so much about the United States per se. Uh, but what they're trying to do is by kind of creating a domestic problem for the United States, um, we spend less time worried about what's going on in the Balkans or what's going on in um, uh, Belarus or, or whatever. We have other things to, to deal with because we have problems at home. We sort of isolate ourselves from, from Russia's sphere of influence. And, and therefore, if that's what they want, uh, they gain from that. It could also just be protecting Putin, right? So he, you know, there, it's not like there's strong democracy in Russia. On the other hand, he still needs to, to protect his regime. He still needs legitimacy. He still needs people to think that he has power. And, and the more that people believe that he's a powerful member or you know, one of the sort of uh, uh, people at the table of the great powers that matter, that's good for him. And so if, if people believe that he is you know, representing a country that's a priority for the United States to be dealing with, uh, that elevates his status. And so he becomes sort of you know, somebody that, and this is one of the reasons why Kim Jong-un, of course, wanted to summit was, you know, wanted to be sort of a, a person that people took seriously internationally. Here you are interacting with, with the United States about important issues. So too, if the United States is worried about Putin, then that elevates, you know, Putin's uh, status in the international system. So I, I guess my point is, in the, in the old days, when we talked about deterrence, like, you know, during the Cold War, for example, we, we went through exercises where we would sit down and say, what, what does the Soviet Union want? What is their concern? Why do they want these weapons here? Are they for defensive purposes? Are they for offensive purposes? What's, what's going on here? And it strikes me that one of the places we need to start with, with the disinformation thing is, is at that same level, which is try to figure out what Russia's motivations are. Yeah, you might, you might say to me, you know, Professor Holmes, it doesn't matter what their motivations are. They're doing it. And that's, and that's true. But it strikes me that if we're going to solve the problem uh, and, and, and get to a point where we know what, what specific deterrent actions we can take, Part of that's going to rely on us having at least some understanding of what they're trying to do here. And once we understand what they're trying to do, we might be able to sort of have more fine-grained response. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Marcus, for joining me today. Jeff, as always, I had a great time. This is a wide-ranging conversation. I think we covered a lot. Well, thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone. We'll see you in the next episode. I feel like for these intros, people pretty much know who we are. So... You might think of that, but behind your back, I am handing off copies of these to various other uh, faculty members at other universities who oh. will use a single episode. Um, and so I think it's useful to not assume prior knowledge of the two of us. So for the listener, I'm Marcus Holmes. I'm associate professor of government here at William & Mary. But I, I think I captured that with my esteemed colleague. That part's true. But all we feel- don't, what we don't get is your rank which I know you're obsessed with. So The rank is important. But the other thing that we're, we are missing is a jingle. I mean, we well, have the nuclear explosion. The, the beep, beep, beep. But we don't have the... Or is that a truck backing up? Well, we don't have, we don't have like intro music. Is that what you mean? Right, we don't have an intro oh, Like a theme music. song? 
we don't have a theme song right. or, or a, a jingle i think is the right word like a very a couple seconds of a, like a melody yes well i so i thought about that and um i decided the cold open is the way to go for a low budget enterprise like this i think that's fine i think for season two we should think about the jingle but you know this is our first go around i like the so the first sound effect is like a radio dial like tuning into AMFM. Oh, that's right. I mean, I actually don't listen to these, so I don't know. But that's no, like the static. No, who, who, who listens to them? And then the and then the last one is actually the signal from Sputnik. Um, oh, okay. As it flew over, yeah, it's just kind of cool. I that sounds to me like a moving truck, like backing up. It, it has the same same kind of yeah. sound to it. Yeah. Okay. 